You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Okay. Hi, everybody. How you doing? I'm Kara Swisher. Uh, it's great to be back here at the Washington Post, as it always is. Um, those know I started my career off here, so it's always a pleasure to be back here. I delivered mail for not Jeff Bezos, thank God. Yeah. I, I'm trying really hard not to say something about that photo. Uh, I'm trying really hard, so I'm going to control myself. Um, anyway, good morning. Um, I'm Kara Swisher, co-host of the Pivot podcast and also on with Kara Swisher. I'm joined on stage now by Rebecca Weiner. She's Deputy Commissioner of Counterterrorism Bureau at the uh, New York Police Department. That's a huge job. Uh, Yasmin Green, uh, CEO of Jigsaw, which is started by Google many, many years ago. And Sherilyn Eiffel, uh, former president of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, and is now a Harvard law professor. Um, so we have a lot to talk about. This is an area I have written about for decades, about the, uh, the increasing uh, hate, anti-Semitism, homophobia all over. Yeah. Largely, I've focused on um, online and the rise of it. Um, but we are back again with the current conflict in the Mideast. Um, and you know, I'm sure some of you have read about it in the Post and elsewhere about uh, the rise, uh, global rise in anti-Semitism and Islamophobia uh, since October 7th and the war between Israel and Hamas. Let's start with you, uh, Commissioner Weiner. Um, what have you seen in New York City over the past month uh, besides protests, which are certainly everywhere? Um, and, and what have you done to deal with the increase? You're always dealing with these various and sundry Issues. Issues. For sure. First of all, thank you so much for having us. Uh, it's a great honor to be here. And, um, you know, this is something that we contend with all the time, not just in the last five weeks, but the last five weeks have presented a real challenge. And one of the, the short clips that you all played in your video makes the point that this has really been uh, sort of unifying in a way to the broad swath of our um, threat environment and energized both our Al-Qaeda and ISIS supporters, our racially and ethnically motivated violent extremists. And when we were first conceptualizing this panel, the focus was going to be on that element of the threat spectrum. Of course, now we're contending with the war in, uh, in Israel and Gaza and its aftermath. And you know, we're going to have a big uh, rally here uh, in D.C. later on this afternoon. So a lot of emotion, a lot of tension, and tensions have been rising across the world, including in New York City. Uh, emotions are strong. And the goal has been, how can we allow people to channel those emotions uh, and those sentiments in ways that are nonviolent on our streets? So we've had tens of thousands of people out over the last five weeks protesting across the spectrum. And our goal as a department and as a city has been to allow them to do that. And for the most part, things have remained peaceful. Uh, it's hard as a conflict like this, which is so protracted. And we're going to be, uh, I imagine, spending some time talking about the digital landscape and how that is uh, inflecting and infecting our threat environment. Uh, so as the conflict is protracted and as people are consuming all of the horrific imagery that's come out of the last five weeks, that's going to play out physically on the streets. So it's, it's a big task for us as a department. It's a big task for us as a city. Uh, and every day, our officers, our men and women are out there making sure that we're keeping the city safe. So when you, you use the word threat assessment or threat landscape, where would it be right now? Because you, you have a constant, I mean, 
from, from just regular parades and events and everything else. There were the Trump trials where everyone thought there was going to be some violence then. Mm -hmm. um, and then this. Yep. How, what do you think the threat landscape right now is? It, it is very heightened. And the FBI director has been very forward-leaning in talking about this. Uh, NCTC director across the intel community and law enforcement across the country, um, it's very heightened. And to me, we go back to other moments. And as a city, we've confronted a heightened threat environment. Uh, often, over the last two decades, uh, this one is likened in certain ways to 2014 in terms of the international terrorism threat environment, which was, of course, when ISIS declared its caliphate and inspired a lot of what we call homegrown violent extremists across Western countries to take action a lone actor kind of threat, which I think a lot of people think about when we think about the lone actor threat. Um, but this is also energizing people outside of that context, outside of, of the lone actors. And there is a certain element of um, coordinated group activity right. to think about. And that's a different threat, but it still can create uh, public safety issues for us as a department. So we really have to walk and chew gum at the same time. Right. And we're giant and we're used to dealing with this, um, but it is requiring a lot of our folks. So, yes, I mean, the war obviously is being fought online, and this, this particular war is, is, is an information war um, in terms of imagery, in terms of misinformation, and not just um, misinformation, but real things. People actually saying real things that are quite. Uh, I was just talking to Sherilyn backstage about every time Elon Musk retweets something or makes a comment, it creates even more. Like, it's real stuff and, um, and it's fake stuff at the same time, all mixed in together. Um, talk a little bit about Hamas has wielded social media to its advantage um, and how the strategy is different than other terrorist organizations, because it, it isn't. There is a playbook to these things that I've watched over the years, whether it's election deniers or, or whatever. There's a certain up and down the spectrum. Yeah, so um, I think the, the paradigm-shifting uh, terrorist organization with regards to using the internet was the Islamic State. Um, who just kind of took over the major social media platforms and um, were really able to recruit in a really sophisticated way. Um, and I, just one, like, one like, example of this that really crystallized it for me was that um, when we were re reviewing the languages that the Islamic State made marketing material in, they weren't just English and Arabic. They were like, you know, German, Russian, Turkish, Kurdish, Chinese. But they even had a marketing video in sign language. So like that was an organization that was like taking like the time and care to make sure that their message reached the deaf and hard of hearing. Um, nothing compares that. In my mind, when I think about like the, I don't think about people who had Super Bowl ads. I don't think about like Think Different, the Apple campaign. When I think about like marketing geniuses, to me that that's ISIS. They had their own, you know, um, Dabiq, they had their own online magazine, they had their own news outlets, they had um, uh, music videos, basically. So they were really in a league of their own. It's also inexpensive, right? It's an inexpensive way to, to do this. Yeah. I mean, if you think about the Russians, they lost the Cold War, but have won, in many ways, the information war, because it's inexpensive and it's, they're using the landscape that we created in the United right, States. Right, 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 right. There's, there's some asymmetry there too, and it's cheaper for sure. Um, what Hamas has done, like, they have a much less broad and um, 
imposing footprint online. They're not on the major social media platforms, the exception of Twitter X that they have um, had some, some, some visibility on. Um, they have, do have a couple of like news outlets but, um, that are online, but they, they're not quite as compelling or sought out as, as ISIS's ones were. Um, but they have these Telegram channels that are, you know, the founder of Telegram has been very um, explicit in wanting to give Hamas a megaphone. Um, which is interesting to think that not all major apps and platforms have the same philosophy about moderation. Um, and, you know, what ISIS has, uh, sorry, what Hamas has done really effectively, I think, was take something that ISIS did experiment with, which was live streams, um, but really the lone shooter, kind of the violent white supremacist, you know, the Christchurch shooter was the one that really kind of, I feel like, calcified this as the formula, was like, we're gonna ha there's going to be a live stream component, which means you go into combat with a, basically a little camera on your, you know, weapon, um, and you capture it, and you plan in advance to post that online and have it proliferate. And proliferation is part of it. You don't have to have a big thing if proliferation works. And in the right. terms of Christchurch, um, which was one of the first times. Um, let me ask you very quickly, what are the platforms doing it about now? They've been cutting rather significantly in their moderation. They've given up. I don't know what else to say. They seem to have given up in a lot of ways. Um, what, is, what has been their response? Because it seems like it's done. They've, they've decided just to let it be. Your, your impression is that the major platforms are allowing Hamas content? No, I think they're not. They haven't. They, they, whatever the content happens to be, whether it's, again, election denial, this is something that happens over and over again. They're trying to pull it down, but don't have a lot of purchase to do so, given the proliferation. Well, this is, okay, I suppose that's a bigger question about maybe how big tech is doing on moderation. Um, Specifically on, on um, Hamas, I'll say that like one of, so the two archetypes of terrorism that have informed the way that the platforms prepare to tack, like respond to terrorism were um, the lone shooter, you know, which is uh, typically like, it's like a burst of activity. There's a live stream, there's a manifesto. By the end of the day, the, the shooter's not even around anymore, or is, you know, as in like the shooter himself didn't survive or they, they've been um, apprehended. So it's like a very short burst and then it's done. You know, they can begin the cleanup. And actually, like, at the last shooter, like, I think the video was up, like, for two minutes on Twitch or something really remarkable. So I think they've, they are figuring out how to respond to that one. And then the other archetype is the ISIS, which really has been a formative experience for a lot of these trust and safety machinery. Um, and one of the things, although ISIS seemed so formidable and... Uh, like terrifying at the time. One of the things that was helpful about the nature of the ISIS threat was that their branding was so good. You know, like they always showed up like on brand. They had their logos. They had their like their uniforms. They had their like mantras. They had so the way that detection, scale detection works on the social media platforms is that they train these algorithms based on showing them a lot of examples. They do pattern detection. So once they see so many examples, then they can go after something that they've never seen before. And they're like, oh, I think that's ISIS, even though I've never seen that video before, because I've seen so many examples of ISIS. Hamas do not have their shit together as much. So like their stuff doesn't look as aesthetically you know, aligned. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that's one of the challenges in going after, in going uh, after. after ISIS pro Hamas yeah. stuff proactively. But it's assessing their performance so far is same old, same old, which is to say less than good. For the tech platforms? I think they suck. Um, okay. <laughs> um, 
who want my opinion. I don't think they care. I think that's more to the point. It's expensive and difficult. Sherilyn, the uptick in Islamophobia and anti-Semitism is part of the larger consistent yeah. trend, uh, which has been goosed by online media for sure. Um, according to the FBI, hate crimes have been on the rise since 2004. Those reported numbers are likely a fraction of the actual number. Um, what do you make of the rise and what are the conditions mm. in America that mm. enable it? What do you, yeah. what, how do you put that together? Yeah, thank you. I think we do have to put this in the context of the ecosystem, um, which is to say that you know, online hate doesn't exist separately and the rise in anti-Semitism and Islamophobia is part of a larger rise in hate crimes, as you described, since 2004, but also a spike since 2017. And I think if we are not careful, we will think that we're talking about something isolated that you can put a circle around as opposed to a transformation that has happened across the board. I can remember in 2017, in six months, uh, a white supremacist left Baltimore determined to go to Manhattan and kill a black man. And he came with a sword and killed a black man on a street in Midtown. Uh, shortly thereafter, a black man who was a member of the ROTC, a student at Bowie State College, was standing at a bus stop to go to a party at the University of Maryland and was stabbed by a white supremacist. And then shortly thereafter, uh, three men were attacked, two were killed on a light rail in Portland after they tried to stop an Islamophobic attack against a woman. I remember this because I wrote to Jeff Sessions, the then attorney general, to say something is happening and we need to hear from the Justice Department. And I also talked about the ways in which the president, then President Trump, was loosening the reins on things that create a climate for the rise in hate crimes, mm -hmm. which is that there are norms that we have established and developed over decades that are largely what manages our conduct and even our thinking, right? What is socially acceptable and not socially acceptable. Right now, um, many of you have negotiated you know, the, the edge of the seat between you. You're not fighting with each other. Not There's yet. just a norm about <laughs> how you manage it. You don't have to talk, right? Um, there are things that we have established. And some of those things, hard fought, uh, through the civil rights movement were about race and racism, were about gender bias after the women's movement. And to have someone at the top of the chain, that is the president, saying, you don't need that anymore, right? You don't have to police what you say. Um, you can be free. In fact, it's liberating. It's fantastic to say whatever you want. Knock them out, drag them out of here. All the, the way in which he appealed to the headiness of not having to abide by norms, um, creates a climate in which people feel loosed from the things that might make them move away from a particular site or not stay on it or not look at it or not behave in certain ways or read certain things. Um, and so we have to recognize that when we're talking about technology, it is always being pushed by the real, what I call the real world, right? It is always being pushed by that. And it is a feature of this country that we have a history that is real, a history of white supremacist ideology that we will always have to battle. We will not end it, but we're always battling it and we're always seeking to contain it. But it takes work to contain it. Mm -hmm. And it cannot be contained if you have the leader of the country saying it doesn't need to be contained. They're very good people on both sides. 
right? So I think that understanding the political dimension to this is critically important. And then it becomes, what I've noticed is that offline behavior then got loose, which created online Absolutely. behavior, which then shoved itself back. It's a loop. It's a loop. That's why I'm saying it's important to understand that ecosystem. You know, so we're where talking are we now. Right now, say again. Has that changed, or is it that's it? I think it's done. that we have to. This is the part that I, is depressing, but I think we have to recognize, is that having that leadership for four years broke something in us. You don't. You don't just snap back because you elected somebody else. Something was loosed, and it's hard to get it back. I also think we have to recognize that there is, and this is going to sound mushy, but I'm sure I'm right, <laughs> a level of trauma that comes out of the fact that we have been through the coronavirus. I think there is a calcification that happens when a million Americans are lost in three years and we have no kind of national, cohesive manner of thinking about the grief of that. You know, after 9-11, we grieved. We, every 9-11, every the bells still ring and we all still do something and we remember where we were. And that was for 3,000 people. Now We've we lost move on. a million, to and next. we just keep it moving. And we should not believe yeah, that that calcification of the spirit does not have an effect on what happens when we see certain things or hear certain things. Which, which has to do with the speed at which we get it. You're 100% right. Um, can, it, I, can, Karen, it, can I just give you an example that goes to the online, which is your point earlier? The Nashville shooting, the, the mass shooting at, at the Covenant School, we, we had an agreement, when I say we, I mean just in this country, and you know this, that manifestos would not be posted. We learned from Christ Church that shooters follow one another, that they, you know, take up the manifestos. Yeah, fan base. Yes, but you'll notice that Elon on Musk, on uh, X, decided that this was a free speech issue, mm -hmm. right? And so there's a whole dialogue in which he has now positioned the idea of releasing the manifesto, which has been released on X, that that's a free speech issue, and other platforms are censoring. Right. That was a norm that was created among tech leaders to try and stave away something that would harm us all. And someone just released it, but he will still be invited into the finest parties and into Congress without having to account for having broken a norm that you all established. Well, I'm trying my best, but Keep it's going. not working. <laughs> Ugh, the backstage show and went, Elon, ugh, <laughs> just like that. And I was like, uh-huh, yeah, well, welcome to the party. It's been going on for decades. Um, so, uh, Commissioner Weiner, when you talk about these hate crimes, you mentioned lone wolves and organized hate groups. I think they're interconnected now in a way that is, that is not as well understood. Let's talk about the domestic terror hate group threat landscape. Mm -hmm. So everything is interconnected in mm -hmm. ways that we don't, really actually understand, and that's because we are all spending so much time. I love that you are distinguishing real life from digital life, and I'm somebody who tends to do the same thing, but I think for, for younger folks, they are one and the same. They are um, indistinguishable from, from one another, and, and that creates psychological repercussions. It creates democratic norm repercussions. It certainly creates public safety repercussions for all of us. Um, this environment is quite complicated. It is true that there are organized groups. It is true that there are lone actors. It is true that organizations seek to replicate 
the strength of each other through behavior like live streaming and manifestos and the live streaming trend, which is now kind of deeply associated with the racially and ethically motivated extremism world, um, was very much a hallmark of ISIS, actually predated ISIS. So there's a lot of learning behavior mm -hmm. that is occurring. Best whether, practices. Best practices, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but I think what, what's problematic for all of us who are trying to understand in order to anticipate and prevent violence is the ways in which ideological blurring is occurring. Individuals are drawn to one set of hate ideas, consume them for a while, and then migrate to others, which are completely mutually exclusive if you actually take it cognitively and intellectually seriously at face value. So the hate is driving the behavior, whether it's in the digital world or in the physical world. And um, you know, I think for people who are looking for community, they might gravitate toward a group. A group can actually help prevent violence by being a safety valve, if really it's the companionship. But then there's a lot of people in the, the Baltimore case of James Harris Jackson, mm -hmm. um, who mm -hmm. murdered a man in, in New York because he wanted to have more immediate impact uh, for his terrorism crime, but also but hate also crime. It is a community. I interviewed the, the, one of the parents of um, the kids killed in Connecticut, yes. and the group of moms mm -hmm. couldn't believe it happened and therefore gravitated towards a group yep. that they themselves didn't want their kids to, so it had to be fake. And it, he individually pulled them each out of it, which yeah. I can't believe he did that. Um, no. But it was, it, it, it's the idea of community. So talk about, yes. Yasmin, um, the idea of, of connecting the dots, because it's not just one community, it's a lot. There's male supremacy and misogyny, there's, uh, hate against, violence against women, and then it's very closely linked to race. It, it, it's totally it's violent, literally a panoply of supremacy. Yeah, this, yeah. They're all this. It's it's it is a playbook. When I when I say that, it's very common for them to have the same behaviors. Can you talk a little bit about the linkages? Because I don't think people understand the systemic nature of it and how it's welded together in a in an online group. It just happens to be the communication system, and then moves into the real world. Yes, one. We, we, at Jigsaw, we've been looking at extremism for a long time, um, which actually took us to look at conspiracy theories. Um, not every conspiracy theorist is an extremist, but every extremist is a conspiracy theorist. <laughs> They're very important for actually like creating othering, dehumanizing, creating urgency around yeah. kind of violent, violent um, like terrorist acts. And then when we did our first study, so we do a lot of ethnographic studies, which is like we bring people in and, and like a very patient observational type of research where you spend time with people in their homes and you try to understand the human experience and then you try to figure out what the technology touch points. But for our first study with conspiracy theorists, we, um, we, we said we wanted to have like the full spectrum. So obviously like the great replacement conspiracy theory. Mm -hmm. Hands up if you've ever heard of the great replacement conspiracy theory. Okay, so that quite a few. So it's like this, you know, the, the theory that white societies are getting browner, which is true, but because um, a secret cabal of Jews is trying to dilute the white race. The, every single manifesto, I think, white supremacist has mentioned that as a motivating belief. And then we had all the way to kind of like moon landing hoax. And we're like, we want a whole spectrum of, you know, beliefs. So then we sat down with these conspiracy theorists and there wasn't a single person who only believed one conspiracy theory. Mm -hmm. Why? Because 
conspiracy theories have this common architecture, which is like the, you know, there's the secret cabal, the hidden agenda, the cover story, and the proxies and affiliates. And once you subscribe to one, you're basically really open and receptive to any number yeah, of them. Which is called, in the old days, propaganda. That's, that's essentially what it is. And it does, it has a resonance that's really fascinating. Um, many years ago, I told this very funny story of I did an interview with Hillary Clinton, and my mom called me. She happens to be sort of right-wingy conspiracy. Not quite, but down that avenue. Um, at home a lot with Fox News, let's just say that, 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 that level. And she started relating my interview to me through a conspiracy theory lens. And she's like, this is what she said. I said, no, no, she didn't. That was my interview. She didn't say that. She said, oh, she did. And I was like, no, she said it to me. And we had an argument. And I said, why don't you go listen to it? She went and listened to it. She's like, OK, she, she didn't say that. but." The emails, like it moved to the next <laughs> one, and it was like the next one and the next one, which is is the. So can I just say one quick thing about like the the, yeah. the thing you were saying about um, that? So throughout time, conspiracism and and I think extremism too, like have have gone up during times of um, volatility and chaos. Sure. So like you know, great the Great Depression, you know, natural disasters. Um, and, and there's this quote that I really like because I think it helps explain the human resonance of a lot of these like, beliefs and disinformation narratives is um, that conspiracy theorists are the last true believers in an ordered universe. Mm. Then you understand it as a coping mechanism, as a sense-making mechanism. We're pattern-seeking creatures. We, they have explanatory value. We'd rather believe that all the dots are connected and there's like a satanic cabal at, behind it all than to actually believe that COVID was just, you know, it was just shitty luck. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Sherilyn, uh, obviously white supremacy, as you noted, has mm -hmm. deep and persistent impact on our politics. How do you think the nature of American politics right now is responding and also driving hate. You mentioned, obviously, Trump. Mm -hmm. But where are we right now? Well, I think that many more people in this country than ever in my lifetime understand that there is systemic racism in this country. And more importantly, I hope understand that white supremacist ideology and racism is the stalking horse for so many other things that ail our democracy and that our democracy will never be healthy until we confront it. In other words, if you're thinking that we just don't have to pay attention to it, and this is something that uh, well-meaning liberals did, you know, the idea that it's somewhere down there in the South, mm -hmm. and now the South has come for the whole country, right? Um, that now, now we're seeing the Alabamification of the nation. So we actually have to address what is fundamentally an anti-democratic movement, because that's what it is. Mm -hmm. And we have to meet it. We have to go to meet it and deal with it, or it comes to consume the very democracy itself. It's not, you know, that's why I say to people, civil rights work is democracy work. It's not something that we're over here doing to get nice things for black people. Mm -hmm. It is at the core of building a healthy democracy. And that poison pill is poisoning us at the moment. Mm -hmm. So I think what is hopeful is that many more people see that, I think, through Charlottesville. Remember when police killing unarmed black people was a conspiracy theory until many of you had to actually see it on videos to understand what we have been talking about for decades? So there are some things that have been revealed that I think help us understand that we cannot speak in just this lofty language about our country, so but we, we have to we deal have to, with this. We want to finish up. I want to talk uh, very quickly, mm -hmm. each of you, because we've only got a yeah. few seconds. Um, what can be done to, to, and I want to end on you, uh, Commissioner Weiner, uh, because you have a personal uh, element of that. But very quickly, what do you think needs to be done by the Biden administration or current politicians 
super quick? Super quick. We have to be um, willing to talk about this honestly. Um, we have to be zero tolerance. I met with several commissioners ago, you know, with the, mm -hmm. with the NYPD commissioner, and I thought, why don't we have, if you see something, say something for our domestic terrorism like we did for international terrorism. We have to be clear that it is policy in our country that this is unacceptable and that it is a threat to our country. Not that it's something about one group of people, but that when we have this intolerance in a country that is doing something no other country in the world has done, which is try to create a multiracial democracy premised on the ideas of justice and equality, that it is a danger to the very experiment itself. Yasmin, technology, obviously. What can, what can technology help in the battle against hate specifically? Oh, just, just to compliment. Sherilyn taking us like historically and, and, and macro is just to say actually I think a lot of our technology interventions would be more effective if they were more human. I think actually a lot of the time when you see the tech platforms act, it's in a kind of like a scaled response to something that well, they have. It's going less human, but go ahead. Keep yeah. Going. It's That's moving it. less That's human. It. I think we, can, we should reverse that. It, it, it more human. Meaning. In terms of insights, like, you know, if I think like, for example, fact checking, I think if you're like an engineer in Silicon Valley, like that sounds like a great idea. You know, people have like, they believe a false claim. Mm -hmm. Why don't we just give them the correction and they can update their false belief? It, that's not, turns out that's not how it works. I think that's one of the most humbling things has been like how little fact checking has done to help us with the misinformation mm -hmm. challenge. Mm -hmm. And I think that's because we're not engaging with the human experience of believing in disinformation. Perhaps because the people making it never felt unsafe a day in their lives. That's my theory of that. Um, I'm gonna end with you, Commissioner Weiner. Uh, there's a personal element to the discussion. As we close, can you talk a little bit about your grandfather, family, and how they inspired your work today? Your grandfather uh, fled Nazi Germany. Most of his family didn't make it out. Um, I think we have a photo. He worked on the atom bomb later. Um, can you just end on that, like how you look at that? Because this is not a new thing. Propaganda isn't new. Hate isn't new. No. It continues. It's just been turbocharged and That's will further be for, with current technologies, for absolutely. example. Absolutely. Uh, yes, so my grandfather was a big source of inspiration. To me, his name is Dan Ulam. Um, he was recruited to work on the Manhattan Project. My mother was the second baby born uh, in Los Alamos during the Manhattan Project, and he stayed. And, you know, he was um, pretty visionary in many ways, certainly intellectually and scientifically, but also the scientists involved in the Manhattan Project and the development of the hydrogen bomb uh, also were involved in the, the development of the modern computer. And very early on, he had a conversation with a Hungarian physicist named John von Neumann, in which they were discussing what they referred to as a moment in time, uh, described as some form of essential singularity, which is a term, the singularity that is pretty widespread in the tech community, um, in which human affairs as we know them will not continue due to the advent of technology. And I think if going back to the conversation of what's one thing that we can do to minimize hate. It is spend way less time on our electronic devices and way more time talking to each other. I think on that note, I think you're 100%. Thank you very much. Good afternoon, I'm Sally Busby, the executive editor of the Washington Post, and I'm so thrilled to be joined here today by three formidable leaders of the top of the news industry. Let me introduce them briefly. Um, Alessandra Golani, who is the uh, chief editor of Reuters, 
Ingrid Cyprian Matthews, who is the president of CBS News, and Rashida Jones, who is the president of MSNBC. Uh, thank you all for joining us here today. I wanted to start this panel um, just with um, some questions about the wars, which are dominating, obviously, and roiling the world as we sit here today. Alessandra, I wonder if I could start with you. Um, Overseeing reporters in a war zone is obviously one of the toughest um, tasks of people in our positions. Can you talk a little bit about that? I know that you recently asked the government of Israel to investigate the death of one of Reuters' um, video journalists who was killed on the border um, in Lebanon. Can you talk a little bit about how that sense of responsibility of being responsible for the, for the safety of journalists is and how you approach that as a leader? Yeah, so um, thank you um, for having me here, uh, Sally. Well, first of all, I will say um, that I put out that video um, after Issam Abdullah's death, and uh, my daughter, 13-year-old daughter, happened to see that video, and uh, her first remark was, Mom, we have to do something about those wrinkles. In this case, she said, in this case, the wrinkles work. I had, bear in mind, I had not slept for like, you know, 10 days. And this one, but otherwise, we need to do something about it. So nothing like the, the, the voice of a child to sort of bring you back to reality. Um, but, uh, um, but look, it is, um, I mean, the death of Issam was uh, terrible. You know, he was in uh, south, uh, southern part of Lebanon. Um, this was quite early. This was... Um, you know, on the 13th, and uh, he was covering a crossfire um, between Israel and Lebanon, and a shell uh, hit him. Mm -hmm. uh, and the shell, according to eyewitnesses, was coming from the direction of Israel, which is why then I put out uh, that uh, video uh, asking for sort of a full and thorough investigation into uh, what happened. Of course, we are doing our own, which is ongoing, because we want to understand mm -hmm. exactly what happened. We feel we owe it um, you know, to uh, the family, to our bureau, which has obviously been uh, very affected, and to the whole newsroom. Having people in war zones is um, is really difficult. It, it keeps me up at night all the time. You know, we have uh, we have around 50 people in Ukraine, and uh, we have currently uh, nine reporters in Gaza who, um, you know, nothing goes in, nothing goes out. So they they're there until we're able to take them out, and it is in. Uh, you know, we're in a situation in which it is very hard to keep them safe because, of course, we can't send in safety advisors either. Um, it is, you know, we have uh, very, very strong and strict security protocols, and we have actually, we're constantly updating them, but we did a major overhaul over the last 18 months. And, you know, we are very, very careful about where we send people because we have so many people on the front lines. Um, right. We are careful about evaluating the risk against the news value. You know, if this is something that's really important for, for the world to know, then, you know, to a certain extent, we will allow, uh, you know, a, a little bit more than we would if this is why are we doing this? Why would we put somebody in danger if it's not so important? Right. And also we're very careful about documenting it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, being in kinetic situation, is, is not risk-free. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, tragically, situations like this happen and they're just awful. Yeah. Ingrid, you um, obviously have a um, history of um, international coverage, um, CBS and CNN before that. And you have talked about the responsibility to have journalists on the ground, the mission of having journalists on the ground. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you think that has changed over the years? Um, so many people in the conflicts that we're experiencing right now uh, get their news from social media, get their news from TikTok. What do you think is the role of a correspondent in a situation like this, whether it's Ukraine or the Gaza-Israel conflict? 
you know, I, I think that the emergence of TikTok, of Instagram, of mm-hmm. Facebook, of all the digital and all the online um, uh, video opportunities, if you will, makes our jobs a little bit more challenging, but even more important. Um, it is vital to have eyes on the ground. It is vital to have journalists on the ground. Um, you know, everybody with a camera is not a journalist, and I think we all know that. And you know, reporting and documenting and speaking to people and trying to decipher between fact and fiction, um, and especially in a conflict of this nature that has such history and nuance um, where there is such divisiveness that we have all seen globally the response Mm -hmm. to to, to what's happening there. Um, You need people who are disciplined, who are trained, um, who have that sensibility as journalists, Mm -hmm. can ask the questions and bring back the story. Right, just the context and the nuance, the history of the conflicts that they're covering. Exactly. That sort of thing. Rashida, I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit, of what is um, so noticeable, obviously, in the conflict that is happening right now, the war um, uh, in Israel and Gaza, is not just this responsibility of keeping the journalists on the ground safe, which, of course, you also face, um, having correspondence there. But this is also a story that has so many political reverberations inside the United States. Can you talk a little bit about um, the complexity of covering something like that, that is both a faraway war and also a, a very vital and in some cases bitter political issue inside our own country. No, I think um, everything we heard both from Alessandra and Ingrid feeds into that. There's, it's the idea of nuance, of, of being um, careful with reporting and ensuring anything that we're putting out is fair and accurate. You know, we have a different layer of responsibility in a, in a uh, dynamic and quickly evolving situation like this mm-hmm. where, you know, there are times where we've got to not only think about the current state of affairs, but the bigger picture context and how do we, how do we bring those two worlds together? You know, your point about not only what's happening, you know, it's affecting people not only on the ground, but here in the, United Sa- in the United States is something that's frankly unique to some of the other conflicts we've covered. And so those are things that we're all taking into consideration. We're all factoring in. I think first and foremost, we want to make sure not only are we giving accurate assessments and information, we want to make sure we're getting it right, but we also want to make sure we're being fair to the totality of the story. And, and that sound, those are some filters we, we kind of process things through every day. Mm-hmm. Can I add just course, one thing please. that yes. I think is important? And, and to, to what you were saying before, Ingrid, is that keeping people safe right now in newsrooms is, of course, for those of us who have people on the front lines, because you know that's what we do and that's important to inform the world, but keeping people safe in the newsroom. With the onslaught and the increase in user-generated content, so many of our people right. in the newsroom are constantly having to process really yeah. traumatic mm-hmm. visuals. Mm-hmm. And, and, and not only, but in order to identify whether they're correct or not, to verify them, have to really parse them. Mm-hmm. And, and that can be, yeah. that is harrowing. That is very, very hard. And I think there's a new discipline in newsrooms that you know, safety is not just the safety on the ground, but is mental, you know, mental yeah. health safety and sort of management of, yeah. of trauma and vicarious trauma. Yes, no, yeah. that's I mean, so fascinating. You know, really fascinating. Um, duty of care extends beyond the physical safety. Mm-hmm. It's, it's about well-being and it's about well-being in, for those in the field and, as you just said, those back at home and those mm-hmm. watching videos. Um, that sensibility 
did not exist years ago. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a realization that not only is it necessary, it's vital as well right. mm -hmm. for the well-being. And by the way, when you think about not only the volume of the kinds of stories that we're covering, but they're coming at us at a rapid pace. Right. So there's very little time in between for people to recover. So if you don't pay attention to that in that moment, you're losing an opportunity and risking greater harm. And can I ask you how? What are you doing to address that? Training, um, Rashida, actually? Training, I, I mean, super we have, fascinating we have topic, written obviously. processes in place mm -hmm. um, to give teams guidance on looking at sensitive images, You're listening to a, a piece of content versus looking at it, how often, when you take breaks, what things to look for. You know, un unfortunately, there are teams, for every bit of content that makes it out into the ecosystem, there is a large percentage that we can't even put on the air. But mm -hmm. someone's got to look at that stuff. Mm -hmm. And so we've got written practices. Um, lucky from, luckily, one of our social media video teams has a written policy that we've dispersed throughout our, our entire company to ensure that people are taking care, the, 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 the utmost care that they can, but also that we're giving people an opportunity and the license to step away from it. Th these, these are... Um, tough stories to cover, just as an individual and, and, and the, tr the trauma that that creates. And so that's something that I think, especially in recent years, we've as leaders had to take into consideration not only the physical danger, not only the emotional danger, the mental da danger, and how do we create processes in our organizations to ensure that we're protecting people. It's really a fascinating yeah. topic. And yes, also please. that safety is no longer, used to be sort of one size fits all. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, HET training, you know, for physical safety, right. you know, was sort of everybody did the same thing. But increasingly, we're realizing that you know different store the way you, that different people are affected in different ways mm -hmm. in kinetic situations, mm -hmm. but also in in you know what they're watching for UGC. So that if you are a woman in a war zone, that is different than being a man right. in a war zone. Right. If you have had previous experience and you now are fabulous at forensic, you know, looking at videos, but you've had your own trauma, then that is more traumatic than if you haven't. And so, real tailor-made safety uh, protocols is something that we're working on. And I assume this is everything from making sure that you have protective gear that fits women's bodies mm -hmm. to um, training for sort of repetitive viewing of terrible video and things like that. We recently had a, um, a partnership with DART, I think many of you know, mm -hmm. yes. where they yeah. came in and are, are talking to many of our journalists about how to be protective as you're looking at um, right. disturbing images and things like this. So this is one of the, I wanted to touch briefly on um, the scourge of disinformation, one of the main challenges facing uh, journalism today. And I think this flows immediately. I was super interested, Ingrid, to see recently that you guys are starting a fact-checking unit. And um, the information that I read talked about hiring forensic, forensic journalists and people who had data visualization skills, other things like that. Can you talk to us, what, do, what, do that, what does that mean? Right? What are, who are you looking for? What sort of skill sets? I think you, you described it uh, appropriately. It's a, think about a forensics team, right? right. Um, because the need is there now with the um, uptick in deep fakes and misinformation and, 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 and disinformation. You know, we are flooded with video that we really have to decipher mm -hmm. whether it is real or imagined um, or intentionally um, uh, uh, edited to appear to be something that it is not. So CBS News confirms is our way of attacking this, if you will, right. hiring a team of journalists that will include vis visualization journalism, data journalism, expertise in AI technology um, to help us be able to fact check 
the video, the content that's coming in, but also train other journalists within the organization mm -hmm. to be able to do so as well. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. I think many people don't think of journalism as having that sort of skills. We think about people putting microphones in front of, being able to get information from documents, but yeah. this whole sort of idea, which is really emerging in our industry, was really fascinated by that. So as we head into a political year, yes. um, the, uh, which is certain to be certain it never to be ended understatement. marked by right um, <laughs> marked by disinformation right. by name calling by things that could be much worse than that. Your audience is obviously highly interested in politics. How do, how are you going to approach that this time? We know so much of the recent past history around election denialism. Everything people. Um, saying falsehoods, saying lies. How, how do you approach that to, to gain trust with, with the people who are watching you? Sure. So I think in some ways we have to learn from what we've seen in past cycles. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, there are certain characteristics of the previous cycle as far as disinformation, intentional disinformation, systemic processes to, to infuse the, um, the voters in the, in the audience with, with information that's swaying or, or leading them in a certain direction is one piece of it. But so there's some things we can learn and we've picked up from previous elections. But I also think you have to kind of be prepared to, to write the playbook in real time. Mm -hmm. You know, we've never covered an election like this one. We've never covered an election where simultaneously we're also co um, covering trials um, surrounding one of the leading candidates. We, we've just never done that before. We've never covered an election that, was, that had this level of social media influence. We've never, these are things that we haven't done before. So I think you kind of have to approach it twofold. One is what are the things we, we've seen and learned from years past, from elections past, and then how do we in real time adjust and adapt to what's relevant, what's important right now? You know, I think some, some of what we've talked about as far as having systems in, in our newsrooms to ensure that we're vetting information, you know, it's, it's, we all have competitive juices in us, otherwise we wouldn't be sitting on this stage. But I think we all have an appreciation for this idea that sometimes being a little slower and methodical is gonna be, be a, a better service to the audience. And so that's an element um, that, I, that I think, in, in our newsroom especially, we're focused on what is the right uh, context for a story. Context is key. And, and for us, rather than, and, and, and we even talked about it a little in the video, rather than look for the side or the angle, it's how do we help our, our audience better understand? I think the world right now is so nuanced. It's, it's, it requires so much context and texture mm -hmm. that if our value add and our focus is how do we, instead of bringing you here or here, how do we bring you here and bring you to just kind of a, a deeper awareness and understanding of the world that's happening? Because we're kind of figuring it out as well. We, we've, we've never seen times like this before. Mm -hmm. And so that brings me to a question um, that I'm going to ask you, but I would be interested in other people weighing in on this too. The actual trust in the industry that we represent, media, is at historic lows. So as we fight disinformation, as we fight misinformation, how do you actually do that if the people who are looking at what we're doing don't trust us? I've always been intrigued by Reuters' um, effort at transparency. You know, how, do we, how are we telling these stories? Where are we getting our information from? But how do you actually talk to your staff about that? Like, you know, you're supposed to be on the front lines and saying what's happening in the world, but people are actually not necessarily trusting 
you. They may have trusted the name of Reuters or the name of the Washington Post in the past, but not so much anymore. So how do you deal with that, actually? Uh, so yes, it's a fundamental question. And, and, but actually, if I could add something that actually is segue. I'm not, I'm not going no, off please, topic, please. I promise. Um, <laughs> the, you know, it's interesting what you said about you know, sometimes news organizations have to sort of stand together, you know, and we're all very competitive. So as you may have seen, there was just an, uh, an incident over the past few days with an organization called Honest Reporting um, that claimed that a number of news organizations, including Reuters, AP, New York Times, had, um, had uh, embedded, um, or rather raised the question, how could they have pictures so fast if they were not embedded with Hamas during the October 7th mm -hmm. attack? And of course, this was completely untrue mm -hmm. and also very responsible and very dangerous. In fact, it put many of our staff or all these organizations at risk. And all of us, and we actually didn't do it together, but the fact that we all did it and came so strongly mm -hmm. um, you know, and spoke so strongly against this and how responsible it was, I think in these moments, you have to stand up for the freedom of the press and you have to stand up for truth um, mm -hmm. you know, together. So, mm -hmm. I, so I, I agree with that. But going back, with, um, going back to trust, look, it is, it is hard. I'll tell you what we do at, at Reuters. We feel that our combination of being a very global news organization, but also being very local. I noticed there was a clip about local news. And of mm -hmm. course, local news is, is so important. And we worry about it disappearing. Well, we are local in all the uh, countries where we operate in, which is 200. And so we have local journalists with real deep expertise of their countries and working in their languages. You know, we publish in 16 languages, but we have 150 nationalities. That combination of sort of the real local information plus the globality, if you will, mm -hmm. we feel is, is for us a unique aspect of, of trust. Now, how do you get people to believe you? We know that to be true and we work hard at it. And you know, you, you verify your sources, everything that, everything that, every, you know, that, that we know. One of the key things, and again, it has been said before, but it is worth reiterating, is acknowledging when you make mistakes. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that is a really, really important, you know, yeah. it is painful to put out a correction, very, very painful, but it is so important to engendering trust. But often that not even that is is the truth. So it is a constant, constant battle. Um, but I really still believe that when things matter to people, yeah. and I think COVID, you and I were on a panel where we talk about this. COVID is actually a really good example. When things matter because it's making a difference about where you, you know, what you do related to your children, what you do related to your health, people will seek out the facts. Mm -hmm. So and you've got to think that everywhere around the world, there, every topic matters to somebody. So if we can just really be steadfast in that approach um, and not waver, because inside our own newsrooms, you know, we were talking about it before, you know, it's, it, there are many aspects, many things that like this, this conflict that's going on now that create tensions. And you've just really keep to the approach of sticking to the facts and, and, and trying to get to the truth, I believe it's the right way, even though it's not always simple. I, I want to add, because I, I agree with all of that. I mean, it is using your journalistic skills mm -hmm. and applying them you know, across every story. But I think that being um, intentional about language, mm -hmm. being precise and transparent um, is so important and goes a long way because people need to understand what you are saying. And language and words matter more than ever. Okay. You know.
Yeah, that's very interesting. So I wanted to move to just a, a little bit more of a personal note because it's an extraordinary group of people um, on the stage. Um, first, in many of your organizations, um, in a news industry that has not always been necessarily completely friendly to top editors who are women or top producers who are women or top presidents who are women. Um, and I wanted to just ask each of you about that. And I know we all probably get a little tired of this question, but it is incredibly relevant, I think. Ingrid, let me start with you. Does it matter to you day to day that you are you know, the first person who looks like you to head CBS News? Does it matter to your staff? Do you think, do you think about it? Do you brush it aside? Does your staff think about it? What does it mean to the women who work for you? How would you talk about that? I think, honestly, it probably matters to some others more than me. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's because, you know, it. I will be honest, it took me a minute to realize that I owed it to those that were looking up to, you know, seeing somebody like me in my position, that that mattered and that signified something, that signaled something. Mm -hmm. You know, four decades ago, when I started in this industry, never in a million years would we have seen what we're seeing right now. Um, but, you know, I also, my approach has been, there's an evolution. Mm -hmm. You know, and I hope that over the years I have learned from whatever hurdles I faced, and I'm sure both of you have as well, um, and, and took some lessons that will inform how I lead. Mm -hmm. You know, I think there was never a question in my mind that a leader could look like me or could look like you or you. But... Clearly, we weren't talking about me. We were talking about what the status quo was. And I think the important message there is leaders come in every shape and size. Mm -hmm. And so many of us are leaders not because we have a title. And I think that is so key. Leadership is not about a title. You know, um, a leadership is about reaching out, inspiring, bringing people along, mm -hmm. um, and treating humans with the same amount of respect. I think to a degree, the humanity has been lost over time. And so part of my mission is to put that back in. That's interesting. Rashida, will you engage on this question? Yeah, I, I mean, I would say an emphatic yes. Um, it, it matters to me. It matters to um, my teams. I think it matters to the industry. Um, when my role is first announced, I, it, I didn't even think about the fact that I was the first black woman around a major cable news network until it was in a headline. And I was like, huh. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yes, I am. Because I didn't think about it, right? Like, just because, like, I guess intellectually I knew it as a fact, but I didn't think about it. And, and the example I would give you, I remember my daughter, who's 14 now, um, years ago, I remember her saying when President Obama was in office, like, Mom, have there been people who weren't black who were president? It's <laughs> 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 like, well. <laughs> you come sit right here and let mommy tell you. <laughs> but the, but the, what, what that meant was what she saw, it was, it was there and it was just because and it was matter of fact. And my hope is one day it doesn't matter. Today it matters mm -hmm. because I think it's important for, for me to make sure while that might be the headline for me that somebody's got the headline behind me and I've set at least an expectation of excellence so as people are coming up through the industry that they see what's possible um, and they don't question it and the industry doesn't question it. And you, you, when you see yourself in someone, it becomes more of an attainable goal. And, and that's something that I carry with me. 
normalizing. Yeah. Super inspiring. And Alessandra, I think of Reuters as the ultimate sort of like uh, traditional news organization. Do you think that you are the first and last woman top editor of Reuters? Or... <laughs> Talk about this. Uh, no. <laughs> uh, so, well, I grew up in the financial and financial journalism. Mm -hmm. So certainly in financial journalism, business journalism, there really were very mm -hmm. uh, few um, women. Um, but I too, I, I have to be honest, I didn't think about it either until I saw the headlines, you know. Mm -hmm. And also, Reuters is such a storied organization. Most of the most of the people we would get sort of as early career, we had this program called the Trainee Scheme. It was all Oxbridge, so Oxford and Cambridge, you know. And mm -hmm. so that's changed now, thankfully. Mm -hmm. um, and but and so I. Uh, so I, too, didn't think of it, and I don't think of it every day. But I actually think it's our responsibility to think about mm -hmm, it, because mm -hmm. it is important to others. And actually, a lot of I see a lot of um, women, but uh, a, a lot of you know earlier career uh, colleagues, you know, a lot of people in the newsroom mm -hmm. look to me to make changes that will then allow them uh, to have a chance at whatever you know will make them happy. Not everybody you know, like sort of the corporate ladder, but whatever it is that will make mm -hmm. them happy. And, and one of the things we're trying to do actually is to make, um, uh, to make Reuters an organization where actually you don't have to do the things that news organizations always did to mm -hmm. a reporter, senior reporter, then a deputy bureau chief or a bureau mm -hmm. chief, you know, but uh -huh. that actually you can have a really varied career, mm -hmm. both in terms of what you do and in terms of how you're paid um, and you know if in whatever sort of uh, whatever you it is that you want to do so i think it is our responsibility because people are looking to us mm -hmm. to allow them to really fulfill their dreams well, that's just a fascinating set of responses, if I may say so myself. So uh, we are just about out of time. I want to thank all three of you for being here today. This is truly interesting. And I know it's we a should have asked you. very busy time. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah, I told you. I'm the Another amazing today. woman leader. <laughs> the post. <laughs> Next time. It's, Next time. It's, it's yeah. much the same. I think it matters so much for the people who work for us, perhaps more than it means for us, actually. Yeah. It matters a lot for the people who work for us. And I think that is, um, that is exactly what we it. actually have to focus on. So, mm -hmm. um, But um, now I'm out of my moderator. <laughs> this is terrible. <laughs> I'm disciplined. I'm disciplined. Um, really want to thank the three of you. I know it's an incredibly busy time. It means a lot that you um, came and spoke to this audience. So thank you so much for all of you. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.